Last Sunday, we looked at Matthew 28, 18 uh, through 20 in particular. Jesus, the maker of disciples, entrusted the making of disciples to unfinished disciples. And from a performance standpoint, I don't think the disciples were ready for prime time. In fact, of uh, the 12 disciples, one betrayed him, one denied him, and all abandoned him before 11 met him in Galilee, and he gave him the great commission. The sweet and most encouraging thing is that Jesus bookends the great commission with all authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, in effect, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And so he says to us, I'm strong and I'm on your side and I'll be with you. So in looking at the Great Commission last Sunday, I wanted us uh, this morning to turn to the calling of the disciples, from the commission of the disciples to the calling of the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. And so please turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look particularly at verses 18 through 22, but I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Then in verse 17, from that, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. They left everything and followed and this really falls under the turning in which Jesus opens his public ministry 
which is summarized for us in that verse, repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And calling people to repent, he's calling people to do a 180 because the kingdom of God is where Jesus is going, not where people are going. The disciples did that 180 and it probably wasn't the first time that they had heard Jesus or had had some acquaintance with his teaching, what he was all about. But when they did that 180, they turned to the kingdom of God that Jesus said was the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field, the dough that leavens the whole. And in that, they followed him. It was uh, some years ago, Shelley and I had uh, moved to San Francisco following the call of God upon our lives, and we pastored there in South San Francisco for 10 years. And I was uh, speaking on a Sunday uh, about Jesus calling of disciples from Luke 14. 25 through 35. And it was early in the week that I went to visit Tom Hill. Tom Hill was, well, being a young guy, I guessed he was, you know, in his late 60s. He lived alone. And uh, I stopped in to see Tom. And after we exchanged pleasantries, uh, he got down to business and he said, uh, you know, I heard your sermon Sunday. Let's just take a moment and look at that sermon. In verse 25, it says that Jesus is uh, going along, uh, or he's walking, and it says throngs of people are, quote, going along with Jesus. Matthew doesn't say, or Luke, excuse me, doesn't say following. He says going along. And Jesus stops and he turns to the throngs of people and he says, you can't follow me unless. And he begins to talk about hating mother, father, brother, sister, even your own life. And then he says, count the costs. I don't want you to make a snap decision. I really want you to think this through. And he uses illustrations of a king who's uh, going against another king in battle or a man who's building a house. And then in verse 33, he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. So I think when Tom and I were talking and he said, uh, you know, I heard your sermon on Sunday. He then said, I want you to know that I plan to remain a Christian, but I'm not interested in becoming a disciple. And that raises a question for us. When did it become the case in the church today that it's possible to be a Christian and not a disciple? 
Disciple occurs in the Gospels 265 times. Christian occurs three times in the New Testament. And of course, it's used well of us. It's used by those who oppose Christians. It's a demeaning term in the book of Acts, but it means little Christs. So it became a badge of honor, but in Acts, it says it was of the disciples that the name Christian was first used. Little Christs. A disciple And I'll talk about this more in the Sundays to come. Because Jesus was not the only one to have disciples. But what was unique about Jesus' disciples is that he called disciples. Generally, disciples petitioned a teacher for the privilege of following. Jesus called disciples, which is really more on the model of the Old Testament prophet than the contemporary, that is the contemporary of Jesus, uh, teacher and follower. But a disciple, the very word that occurs so many times to denote a disciple, the word that we translate disciple, is the word that means learner. Like a pupil, a student, of course, it means a lot more than what we often use the, the word student or pupil to mean. But certainly, it's a learner. Tom certainly wanted to be a learner. He wanted to be a listener. Uh, Stephen Elliott put me on to uh, some of the work of Pastor and author David Platt, he talked about casual listeners, convinced listeners, and committed lifelong learners and followers. The disciples of Jesus following him required a full-fledged commitment and devotion to be a lifelong learner and follower. Tom wasn't re ready to become a fully devoted follower and lifelong learner of Jesus. What was interesting in uh, what I heard from David Platt was he talked about casual listeners, convinced listeners, and committed lifelong learners and followers. And he asked the question, where are most people across the face of the church today? We have to admit, it, there are many casual listeners. And some are convinced listeners. I believe Jesus. But Platt suspected, and I think we would agree, that most fall into the casual and even the convinced, but perhaps few into the fully devoted and committed lifelong learner and follower. I realize sometimes that's a, that's a process. We move toward that. I understand that. I'm a more committed 
learner and follower today than I was a committed follower and learner even 30 years ago. But where among the throngs of Jesus were the fully committed lifelong learners? That's why Jesus stopped and addressed the throngs and said, you can't follow me unless following me is understood to mean leaving everything else behind. Where did Christian get disconnected from disciple? When did costly Christianity become comfortable Christianity? I know that the cost of the cross is all Christ's and not ours. But we are to take up the cross and follow Christ. And it is a call to abandon comfort, career, position, family, friends, safety, even our own life to follow Jesus. The answer is not more law. Not that we should somehow legislate discipleship. The answer is more Jesus. It's always more Jesus. When I was in South San Francisco, a gentleman came in to see me. I didn't think I had ever seen him before. He was pretty uh, smudgy. <laughs> I, I found out that he worked for the Chronicle newspaper, so he had newspaper print all over him. As I got to know him, I found out that his wife and his in-laws had been longtime members of the church, but I hadn't seen him there. But now he was introducing himself, and he was an inspiring guy. He'd been to a promise keeper's, uh, you know, men's experience, and he was fired up for the Lord. And that was exciting to see. And in effect, he was saying, I'm here now because I'm fired up for the Lord. I'm ready, you know. I'm on board. But what he wanted was to get everybody in the church to be just as fired up as he was now. And he was ready to call down fire from heaven to get everybody just right where he was. And I, I said, Paul, where were you a month ago? We all need to be where you are, but it's always the call of Christ. It's always the grace of Jesus Christ that gets us finally and calls us to leave all that inferior stuff behind and put him first. The answer is always more Jesus. The readiness to take risks, the readiness to take risks of faith to follow Jesus I had a dear friend from high school, Greg Weitz. Man, I just, we went through it all, I know. Um, the whole non-Christian life to the Christian life, the disciple life. Well, Greg, he, he did, he, he didn't have much, but he sold everything and he put on a muslin robe. All he had was his guitar and he crossed the nation. Boy, he made me feel guilty. But his
his notion of leaving everything was, you know, just going out and selling everything and following Christ. And what he became was a, a short-fused, flash-in-the-pan disciple of Jesus Christ that ended up being dependent upon everybody else. What I'm talking about here is the readiness to let go when Jesus says, give that up to follow me. David Platt talked about Christian parents who talk, to their, talk their kids out of radical service to Christ because their parents wanted a certain life for them, wanted them to finish their schooling or to get that athletic scholarship or to get that right job. And they as Christians kind of put the damper on their Christians their kids, you know, sense of the Christian call, Christ's call upon their lives. I guess the best way I can illustrate this is uh, back in 1984, 30 years ago this year, um, Shelley and I got to tell you a little bit about where we were. I was 30, she was 28. We had Jordan, he was two years old. We just moved from a little, little cottage that we'd all fixed up, and then now we had a bigger house, three bedrooms, and we had totally repainted, and I'd trimmed the trees, you know, got myself a chainsaw and all that kind of stuff. And man, that thing was, was right where we wanted it. And um, I was teaching for Fresno Pacific College at the extended campus. I was now a faculty member, which was a dream come true to be a college teacher. Shelly was an RN and she was teaching in the regional occupation program and kind of the health services and, and so forth. And we were really embedded in the church and active and had lots of friends. And it just, it was, we were there, you know. And then on a Friday night, there was a call and it said, uh, I'd like you to consider going to a little church in South San Francisco. I'd like you to preach there. Um, they, their pastor died. They don't have any pastor, and we'd like you to go. I remember walking out of that room. I took the call in Jordan's room, which was dark. He was already in his little crib, and I said to Shelly, how would you like to go to San Francisco? I'd, I'd already had it in my head that if she went, you know, if she frowned or, ooh, you know, I would think, okay, there's a, there's a sign right there off the, right, of what, right away, you know, maybe we'll just make quick business of this whole thing. And she said, well, that sounds good to me. And I knew right then and there we were in trouble. And we went through a process, and it was just green light after green light. And I remember when we went there to, to speak just that first time, no, no obligation. They, you know, they were not expecting, but, but I was speaking. There was a guy in the morning I was going to speak in the evening, and he introduced me as Pastor Enema. I mean, how could, <laughs> how good can things be when they introduce you like that? And I leaned over to my friend and I said, maybe we should sing the hymn, Cleanse Me. <laughs> Which is a great hymn, by the way. I hope I haven't spoiled it forever. I really didn't want to go. 
Sometimes when God calls you, your instinct is, I don't want to go. I mean, what would it mean for us? Leaving our new house, selling it, not knowing where we're going to live. In our case, though, it meant living with another family for two years. We couldn't afford a house there. We were nobodies there. So we're walking away from our positions and reputations. Giving up our jobs where we're somebody to become nobody. Family, friends, my dog, which sounds maybe trivial, but I'd been training this golden retriever for two years, Max, and I had to say goodbye. I mean, every day we worked together. And to say goodbye, I gave him to a friend because there was no place in San Francisco for a golden retriever. You know, now that I think about it, maybe we made the wrong move. <laughs> Just... But you know, if we did, I wouldn't be telling you about it right now. Because it's that kind of decision that informs all the choices. You know, it, it, big choices like that that were made 30 years ago, or when I came here 14 years ago, which was actually taking place about this time, this month, 15 years ago. They aren't made all in isolation, like an island in the middle of the ocean. They're made of a lot of little decisions that are made on a regular basis that maybe don't cost as much, but it's still the same readiness to say, you be Lord. I want to be where you want me to be, not where I want to be. What it meant for us, for me, I can speak for myself, I grew into a man in those 10 years we were there. I became a husband, a real husband, a better husband, I became a father, a pastor, a deep believer. I grew in my faith and my dependence upon God. We deepened our marriage relationship, found new treasure, became disciples of others, and much, much, much more. Everything I am today, I owe to decisions like that. To following Jesus in decisive moments. When Jesus walks by and says, follow me. What we run up against is called cost aversion. Cost aversion. There's been new scientific studies in this area. In fact, in Neuron Journal, which is a neuroscience journal, and it is bringing to medicine and to our knowledge breakthroughs in brain science to understand things about the way our brains work. Well, in this case, these uh, researchers were interested in why high-performance, top-of-their-game people freeze or choke as the stakes go up. And what they found in their studies was that there's a threshold or a tipping point that changes for every person, but there's a threshold or tipping point where the rewards that bring out that winning performance get to a point where they're matched by a fear of loss. 
a fear of the cost. And that awareness, that concern over losing what we've gained that messes with peak performance is what's called cost aversion. Plainly stated, the thought that I could lose it all puts what you have on the line. And when you're on the line, you sometimes fail at that moment of peak performance because you're afraid of what you'll lose. These disciples in Matthew 4 were just called to follow Jesus. Follow me. And they left all. They left it behind. It doesn't mean that they gave it all up, but they left it behind. They were ready to follow him. Do you know, um, Samuel Wells put this well. (laughs) In the Gospels, the issue for people challenged to declare whether they believe in Jesus is not knowledge, but courage to face the consequences. Think about that. The challenge to declare that they believe is not about knowledge. It's about the courage to face the consequences. Do you know what the enemy's goal for you is? Cost aversion. The enemy doesn't fight you where you are. The enemy fights you at the point of where you're going, where Jesus is calling you. And that's when cost aversion comes up. And that's when the devil doesn't want you to go where Jesus is going and where he's saying, follow me. C.S. Lewis said, we're not doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. But don't ever let your happiness depend on something that you may lose. God's goal is not our happiness. It's our Christ-likeness. C.S. Lewis said, the church exists to make little Christs. If a church is not doing that, everything else is simply a waste of time. You've heard of Jim Elliott, missionary, martyr, put to death in the jungles of Ecuador by some tribesmen that he was trying to reach for Christ. He said, and he prayed, oh, that God would make me dangerous. We don't become dangerous in churches where comfortable Christianity is the acceptable norm. We become dangerous when we leave all else to follow Jesus Christ. I love that saying. I don't know who said it. It's usually uh, attributed to someone anonymous, 
But the most dangerous man alive, he wrote, is the man who has nothing to lose. Oh, that we would become dangerous in the hands of Jesus Christ. Corey Tinboom said, it's not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. E. Stanley Jones says, it doesn't matter how much you've got. It matters how much God's got of you. And God's goal is not only not our happiness, God's goal is not our forgiveness. It's our Christ-likeness. Christians are not perfect, we say, just forgiven. I get that. I count on that. Sometimes we say, he died just for me, and I get that. I personalize that. I know he died for me, and I've said that to you. He died for you. You are worth a son to Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't just die for me, and he didn't just die for you. He died for the world. Salvation is not just to save us from our sins. You will not see people in the Gospels or even the New Testament that are called to live just for forgiveness. Jesus came to make disciples who are to make disciples who are to make disciples, not people who are satisfied to receive forgiveness at Jesus' expense and go on living in a casual acquaintance with him. We were saved for a purpose, to become Christ-like and make disciples in the process. Paul Roberts came back to my office a second time. And of course, we became very close, and we remain close. And he is continuing to serve the Lord. But the second time he came back to my office, it was on a little different footing. And Paul shared something with me. He shared that he experienced regret over the call of God on his life years ago that he ignored. He said, I believe God was calling me to full-time Christian service, to really, you know, give up what I was doing and follow him. I told Paul, nobody can go back and start a new beginning. But anyone can start today and make a new ending. Jesus passes by. He passes by on days just like this. When we're not casting nets, but doing other things important to us. And he says, follow me. And to each one of us, there's a a moment in which we're asked to let go and leave behind the things that have preoccupied us to follow him. It's going to be different maybe for each and every one of us. But there are those decisive moments that are made of those decisions 
in which we say, I'm not going to let the past control me. I'm going to let Christ control me. This is a moment like that when we are seated at the table of Jesus Christ. We're seated there because we're, we're his disciples. We're Christians. We know his forgiveness and his salvation. And he offers us the bread, saying, this is my body, which is for you. And he offers us the cup, which is the new covenant. But in doing this, he is offering us all of him that we might give to him, all of us. The readiness, the readiness. The readiness to venture, to take risks of faith. Faith always involves risk because it always seems to involve cost aversion, right? So they become risks of faith. But when we take them, we're following him. And he gives us everything. Real life. That's what he offers us in the bread and the cup this morning. Let's prepare our hearts. Let's take a moment, bow our heads. Jesus says, follow me. What's your response today? I'll close this in prayer and we'll take the bread and the cup. It's often said today is the first day of the rest of your life. This new covenant makes that true. All of you drink it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you will, pass the cups toward the center. Thank you, uh, men, for picking up the cups. Appreciate that. want to remind you today we have the privilege of giving to the Deacons Fund. It's dedicated to helping tangibly and in the name of Christ and with the gospel those who come to the church asking for help from the church, from Jesus Christ, his people, and also those within our own family of God that need uh, help in a difficult time. So give and give generously if you, if you can. Will you stand with me? Well, I kind of expect to get a spate of uh, enema jokes uh, now. You won't be able to... Uh, Blame it on autocorrect, so uh, be nice. Seriously, may the Lord bless you and keep you today. May he cause his face to shine on you. He loves you. You are worth a son, his one and only son, and it is he that says, follow me. God bless you.